Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the You Should Run podcast. I am Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, host of this podcast, the You Should Run podcast. And if you've listened to this, you know I've talked to people um, at all levels of government from you know, borough council and school board to U.S. senator, like my two Democratic senators, John Fetterman and Bob Casey. And I've talked to people in every state from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to Florida. Well, you know the states. Uh, and I love to talk about elections, what got people interested in them, um, and learn something along the way that hopefully will encourage someone listening to consider maybe they should run for office. My guest today, maybe tell me I'm wrong. Maybe you shouldn't run for office. Maybe you shouldn't give it um, a chance. And if he says that, well, then I will defriend him on Twitter. Uh, he is the co-founder and the data director at Split Ticket, uh, where they do uh, election analysis and uh, really talk about past elections, current elections, polling, etc. And we'll talk about whether that's good, uh, whether people should be engaging in this, or whether it is kind of uh, it reduces politics to a sport. We'll see. Uh, his name is Armin Thomas, otherwise known as Therongil on Twitter. Very popular, more popular than me, which is unfortunate for me. Armin, thanks for talking today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. All right. Well, we'll see if it's an honor. Right? That's we'll find out. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, I didn't ask this to begin with. Where are you in the country? Where are you in the world? Because I can see your background, but that could be any place in the country. So this is right now just my house. I'm on Cape Cod right now. Oh, good. I haven't talked to anyone from uh, Massachusetts in a while, so I'll chalk that up on the big board. Um, yeah. I I have tried – in 2020, I realized I had been talking to people um, in enough states that I could get to 50 states. I made it a priority. Um, before I get into other stuff, are there any states that you find really cool and interesting to follow and pay attention to for their politics? Um, I mean – to be quite honest, I don't pay attention to the minutiae of all of the things that are going on. But, you know, at Split Ticket, they basically call me the the Western United States person mm -hmm. because I've done a lot of these deep dives in states like Colorado and Utah and New Mexico and Montana and such. And I think there's just a lot of really cool things that are happening out there. I mean, obviously, you know, Massachusetts and then my adopted other state that I – you know, lived in for a bit, which is Connecticut. There's some interesting stuff going on there as well. Um, but you know, lots of lots of cool things are happening all over the place right now. Yeah, and it's interesting you talk about the Western states because they are very diverse. Colorado is quite different from Utah, which is mm -hmm. quite different from Montana. I just had a coworker say to me that, "Oh, my brother is moving to I can pronounce it Corda." Veer or whatever it is, Idaho, and I said, "Oh, that's yeah, <laughs> I think it might be." And I said, "Oh, okay." And my other coworker said, "Oh, what's wrong with that?" I was like, "That's kind of where all the neo Nazis are." And she, <laughs> and she said, uh, how, "Wait, why are they there?" I was like, "I guess they got to be somewhere, right?" Like, so from your perspective, like these states, they might all be close together, but they're pretty different. Well, I think that just like when you look at states that are right next to each other here, right? Like Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and all that. The one, they're much smaller, so they're geographically closer to each other. But two, you know, like there's always settlement, no matter where you go out here. Whereas, you know, states in the West, you know, you really don't have as much of, of a built-up rural base as you do elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I, I like to joke, but Nevada, I, I like to say Nevada is really just two cities and then Mars in between them. Mm -hmm. And that's what the state is. And I think it's the most extreme example. But a lot of the other states, you know, do have that kind of uh, uh, divergence. It's, uh, you know, somewhat of a good explainer in terms of why New Mexico and Arizona had very different developments. And, you know, diverging political cultures, too, is because of the difference in settlement patterns and stuff. But that's a, that's a conversation for another time. Like people say that about here in Pennsylvania. I mean, James Carville um, said 30 years ago that Pennsylvania was just Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in between. And that may have been true to some people in the past, but it's clearly not the case right now. It's a very yeah. different state than it was. Except the difference is that the Alabama of Pennsylvania actually has a lot of people, whereas... The Alabama, Nevada doesn't. Yeah. Well, and that's that's a good point. But speaking of people, you got interested in politics because of people, I assume. 
Um, oh, yeah. When did you start becoming politically um, interested in, like, doing this kind of work? So, um, I mean, we watched election nights and stuff as kids, but it was never a huge thing until 2016. I imagine a lot of the people you've talked to mentioned 2016 as kind of a watershed moment or a turning point mm -hmm. in terms of how they've, you know, viewed America and the electorate and whatnot. So I just got involved in college, you know, I organized on some campaigns and, you know, at the same time, you know, I was on Twitter and I saw some of J. Miles Coleman's maps about various different elections and I was like, you know, this is really cool, you're actually providing context and history and, you know, numbers to explain why things are the way they are. And, I, you know, one thing led to another and that then the rabbit hole just kind of happened. And then it was in the pandemic when all of my actual friends from school, you know, I, you know, didn't see them for a very long time. And I was like, you know what? I have all this time in the world. I might as well just start making maps and interacting with the community. And that's, that's what happened. And, you know, three, three years later, we are, we are here right now. So that, that's basically it. Um, you know, since I've been out of college, I really haven't been as active on the campaign side. But, you know, at Split Ticket, we, we know many people who are involved in that, you know, side of things. We, we hear their perspectives and all. So it's, it's, it's good to have a foot in both camps, I think, because at least on the online community of, you know, amateur elections uh, prognostication, don't have much experience, you know, actually volunteering or working on campaigns, and I really do think there's something intangible you get from it. Mm -hmm. It's this is this is in the in the professional world. It's different because a lot of those people at you know five thirty eight and or you know some of the other polling groups and stuff. You know, they know their stuff in terms of you know how campaigns are run and what some of the dynamics of that are. But on you know the community we call election Twitter. That's not as that's not as prevalent, and so I think that you know I think I benefited from having at least a little bit of campaign experience in college. Yeah, I remember just last year. It uh, feels like a long time ago, but last November with our Senate race, staying up, I was excited for John Fetterman to win, and I was watching the maps that people like you were posting. I was like, why haven't they called this race? That he's going to win. I know he's going to win. And it was interesting because, like you said, more – I mean, give yourself more credit, but more amateur people online following these trends. And I could tell an hour before they called it that he was definitely going to win. Do you think yeah. that, like, some of the networks um, – you know, they've been hesitant before, but maybe they um, need to catch up with some of that analysis that's going on? Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's, that you know, every cycle, you know, people try to beef up their data operations. And, you know, in 2020, we got more models, and that was, you know, the, one of the first elections where election Twitter as a big community became a thing. And, you know, now in the wake of 538, that world of data analytics and stuff that, you know, normal lay people have access to is kind of up in the air. But um, I think with the big news people, you know, and, you know, now that I have all the followers that I do, I can't really do this anymore. But when you only have a couple thousand followers, you can say whatever the heck it is you want and, you know, kind of play fast and loose with the rules in a way mm -hmm. that you really can't when you have, you know, a big audience. You know, I, I learned that the hard way with Colorado's third, but we won't talk about that. Um, but, you know, when you're a big organization like CNN or ABC or Fox, the things you call, you know, those move markets and, you know, people actually respond to that mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, we have a reach at Split Ticket, but, you know, even our reach is not that big. So, like, one example of this is the call in 2020 that Arnon Mishkin did for uh, Arizona when he called it for Biden. And mathematically, Nate Cohn did a very good piece about this, or uh, Twitter thread, something like that. He did a good analysis and said that, you know, Technically, he was right in that he did correctly call the winner, but based on the available information at the time, it really does seem like he actually did jump the gun. So, you know, calling races is something that, you know, there's a lot, there's, it's as much of an art as it is a science in terms of really close things. And it's gotten more complicated, especially um, with the rise of, 
you know, the discrepancy between in-person voting and mail-in mm-hmm. voting, um, you know, especially in 2020, that was really difficult. Now, what you said about Pennsylvania in 2022. So to be quite honest, on election night, that was not the first thing I had, uh, you know, that was not the, the highest bucket list item on the list of races I was watching. I mean, I'm in New England, so the first thing I was looking at was Alan Fung, you know, one district mm-hmm. or two districts over in Rhode Island. But I saw Lackawanna County come in at like Fetterman plus 20 is 21. And I was like, if that's the whole county, he's winning. And he's going to win. It's not going to be close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the, the, the one who I mainly outsourced all of my Pennsylvania you know, analysis to was this guy called uh, Joshua Smithley. I don't know if you've... Mm-hmm. If you've oh, yeah. Him. I love him. But he's, uh, he's a very, he's a very uh, knowledgeable person about Pennsylvania. Um, I think that's one of the other things is that a lot of people, you know, when you, when you start out on Twitter learning about elections, you don't know a lot, Mm -hmm. but then when you get to learn more, then you start to think, you know, a lot, but then the people who know even more than that, you know, are more adept at saying, okay, here's what I do know. And here's what I don't know. And there's a lot that you in fact don't know. And when you don't know things, you really have to, you know, outsource what it is you're looking at to, people who do and, you know, get their informed opinion. It's, you know, I'm covering Senate for split ticket. And so every time I write a piece about, you know, specific state issues and trends and, you know, dynamics of individual things, you know, I always make sure to have people who actually, you know, have firsthand knowledge of what's going on on the ground kind of that we're doing so that we don't say anything that's, you know, too criminally stupid or anything. But, um, with Pennsylvania, um, I think that was a, you know, a really gross miscalibration of expectations on the part of, you know, people who had seen all of the pre-election polling beforehand. And I myself will confess, you know, I watched that debate between Dr. Oz and John Fetterman. And I did not think John Fetterman did a good job in the debate. I mean, I don't think John Fetterman thought he did a good job, right? Like, it's not like it's a subjective opinion. Judging by how you would normally judge a debate performance, Dr. Raw's looked and sounded better. The problem is that one, people, you know, we no one expected Fetterman to get a sympathy boost for actually, you know, going out there and all. Which, you know, credit where credit is due, he handled that very, very well. Um, But second, you know. I guess we really underestimated the ability to which Dr. Ross was stepping on rakes in that campaign, you know, with the, what he said about the local political leaders, the determining mm-hmm. the, the woman's right to abortion. Um, and, you know, it's just those things like that, that, you know, especially when the polls tighten and stuff, you know, there was a lot of hurting around this narrative that uh, a red wave in Pennsylvania and such, and then it was utterly disproved. But, um, I, I, I do think that, you know, having always questioning your priors is good because when you don't, you know, it can lead to lots of self-reinforcing biases that eventually blow up in your face. And in 2022, you know, people, I think generally, you know, the polls were pretty good on balance, but, you know, in terms of the overall expectation that people were setting, you know, I think there was certainly a differential between what people could see born out of the data and what people, you know, were vibes casting based right. on what they just thought was going to happen. And so I think separating the two and knowing when the two go together is, you know, part of the art of, you know, election forecasting as much as looking at the numbers is the science of it. Yeah, you probably don't remember this, but um, because um, I'm old and you're not as old, but the... Um I remember when Nate Silver became popular with the Obama campaign in 2008. And there was like this riding momentum for Obama. People were excited for him. Um, and not that I like John McCain, but poor John McCain. No one gave a crap about him, right, at that certain point towards the end of the campaign. And I mean, was, I was in third grade at the time, and nobody in my school gave a crap about John McCain. <laughs> you so old. So anyway, um, I was 28. And anyway, so he um, – I remember that Nate Silver was on like the Daily Show saying, based on everything we see, this is like a week out, Barack Obama is 99% chance to win. And 
of course he did, and I, I, he may have done as well or better than what Nate Silver said. At, at that point, it doesn't matter to people as long as you win, right? What the people care about the wins more than um, how close you got it. But now people seem to care more about that, like someone like Nate Silver or yourself or J. Miles Coleman or news, any news poll that it agrees with their interpretation more than they care about being right, right? Like they, people like Nate Silver not because they thought the data was cool. They liked it because he said that their guy was going to win. Is that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, I think that people want different things out of you know, election forecast and such, you know, you know, our partner at split ticket, Claire Considine, she's an actual pollster. And she always says polling was never intended to nail a horse race. You know, it's supposed to give you a, a rough idea of what is, you know, happening, but it's not, it's not, it's not designed to be accurate to the 10th percent. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of people who interact with Nate Silver and such you know, they're not statisticians. They're not people looking at this from a purely analytical bent. They're just looking to say, oh, yeah, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. And, you know, he thinks that we're going to win here. We're going to lose here. And that's good or that's bad. Um, so if that's the maximum that people's personal involvement with politics is, then I don't know if I can fault them for only, you know, having that level of involvement with the election forecasting world. Mm-hmm. It's a separate issue. You know, getting people to care about the issues that they believe in and to fight for them. But, you know, civic engagement, I think, is, you know, somewhat separate from and I think in certain ways kind of orthogonal to um, election forecasting. Because when you have all of these big boards and these models and people have running tallies of what happens each day and such, you know, then people who have less of an involvement in all of it kind of do treat it as a sport, like you said, and there are weaknesses to that. So, yeah, that's that that that's my piece on that. Yeah, you know, and I think one thing that's interesting as you talk about treating it like a sport is I like to joke that people talk about news bias, but there's no one more biased in the news than the local sports reporter, right? Like the guy here on NBC <laughs> Philadelphia. He is always so biased for the Sixers and the Eagles and everything. He's not an objective. Oh. <laughs> He'll pretend he's objective. Do you think that? You know, you can be objective, but still care about results. Like the guy who is a uh, newscaster, he, he does a fine job reporting the sport. Even the weatherman, right? Like Bill Headley on NBC10, he's biased <laughs> towards you having a nice day, but he's going to be giving objective news about the weather. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, you, as long as you check your biases at the door for the actual numbers and the data, mm-hmm. you can have whatever opinions. You know, I get along with liberals, conservatives, moderates, all of them on you know Twitter who I work with. And, you know, what unites us is trying to figure out what, you know, actually the truth, right? Because what we have are, you know, opinions that we think are reflected in facts, but the actual facts might bear something out that disagrees with what we believe in and if it does then we have to update our priors and you know go accordingly from there i think that you have certain elements in some of the polling and science and and data world who do what can be you know classified at best as unscientific and at worst as outright fabrication of polls and such but, you know, people know who they are and their their reputation is not really taken seriously. And so I think that, you know, th- there's certainly a way to, you know, it's like separating the art from the artist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's a, that's a whole debate, you know, because the vast majority of, uh, you know, pollsters and whatnot have not been accused of anything like Michael Jackson or whatever. You know, so that's not something that, you know, really needs to ever come up. But, you know, people who have certain things that you might not like about them, if their work is good, then you kind of, you know, you can still treat them legitimately. And that's something I deal with a lot. Yeah, I know a lot of liberals who are Democratic people I know who are like, oh, that's a Fox News poll. We don't even need to read that. like... Actually, their polling is often their better for Democrats. Their polling is one good. of the more commendable things about that organization. Yeah, they're, they're usually good. So you've done a lot of maps. 
you, you've looked at a lot of different elections from a results point of view, if not an issues point of view. What have you learned um, from doing these maps? Have you learned anything about the trends or like, is there a big picture thing you've learned or is it really localized? So the big overwhelming story of political trends in the past, you know, 40 to 50 years has basically been, you know, more educated voters have been moving to the left and lower educated voters have been moving to the right. Mm -hmm. You know, all else being equal, that's basically what's happened. And that shows up, you know, time and time and time again, you know, in a lot of maps you do. You know, I happen to think that the older maps, you know, where there was more regionalism and local parochial interests that dictated things besides whether or not you had a college degree made for more interesting, you know, cartographic and, you know, dynamic results to just look at and, you know, observe. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because when, when you see all of these in aggregate, you know, everybody says, oh, maybe, maybe these places shifted because of this candidate, this candidate supporting this policy or whatever. And, I mean, the truth is that when you map enough of these races across all these different spaces and across all of these different times, you really start to think that the forces that are driving educationally aligned polarization into the different partisan camps, they're much bigger than anything that any one person or any one campaign or even any one political party can affect change. Because so much of this is just baked into these demographic differences between, you know, people who did and people who didn't go to college. And, you know, the way that, you know, societies and the economies are changing, you know, it's, it's very interesting because the electoral results are very intertwined with the demographic results and, you know, with the other, you know, results about observable data that you can get on people. And so I think that's where the interesting thing about, you know, mapping old elections and seeing how they compare to new ones is, is that, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, just look at elections and they think it's a matter of think people one way or another. But then you actually look at it and you see how much of it, you know, is, you know, the culture that people are surrounded by, you know, demography and, you know, other things that, you know, really, you know, explain a lot, you know, of why people vote the way they do. Yeah, is it? I mean, obviously, people still vote and, you know, make their own choices. Circumstances of which they, you know, become acculturated in society, a lot of those choices for them. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, in a lot of cases. There's a lot of issues that do come down to demographics, uh, understandably. So, um, if you are um, black, there are issues that you feel the Democratic Party is more aligned to you because of what the Republican Party is in, is interested in, especially maybe on issues of caring about a city, just the, those communities. Um, or you talk about Black Lives Matter, policing, etc. Um, you talk about um, Issues like abortion. So single women are a strong demographic for Democrats in a lot of elections, right? Yeah, we wrote an article about this, yeah. Right. I, I think I remember reading that and, uh, and thinking that obviously it makes sense, but then you put it into um, data and it makes even more sense and tells you what to do. So how much of this is just that that demographic of having an education kind of put, or not kind of puts you in that situation? And how much of that is kind of a perpetuating cycle of People who have an education are going to move to a place like Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, where I am. It's a more college-educated county, so it's trending blue. Because the community we have, it's like the policies fit the kind of people who are moving here. So that brings those people and that elects those politicians who cater to those people. So it's like a perpetuating cycle on the left and on the right where that town yeah. is getting less educated so businesses aren't and schools aren't going there. The town isn't doing so well, um, and it's trending towards Republicans and also trending towards uh, grievance policies where they're like, we can't get ahead. And the reason they can't get ahead is because of the community that's there, unfortunately, doesn't have the things that would bring in business. Yeah, well, I mean. Solve I, it for I, me I, if you can in the next two minutes. <laughs> I think it's a much bigger question, right? Everyone talks about education polarization. David Shore has given dozens of interviews to 
publications about it. I mean, no one has really settled on a good explanation for why beyond the general idea that just all of the changes in the world and the economic order of things in the past 50 years have basically privileged people who do have a college education over people who do not. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the jobs that are favored and, you know, changing economies and such tend to, you know, select against people who don't have a college degree. And so that, you know, leads to brain drain and that leads to resentment and leads to bitterness and, you know, kind of creates this whole atmosphere. And then you also have the idea that, you know, since the 60s, lower education areas tend to be more of a hotbed for cultural conservatism, uh, especially compared to, you know, people who do go to college and, you know, kind of get socialized in these centers where people learn more about others around them and are different than, from them. And, you know, they're exposed to all of these different ideas. You know, um, you know, it's a, it's a working theory of mine, but I really do think that, you know, in the late, in the mid 2010s, when the Republican party really started turning against college as an institution, that was kind of when you really started to see the education polarization really accelerate, you know, to, like 80 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's one-to-one, but I do think there's a lot of underlying linking variables that do connect to there. So, um, so with that in mind, like I, I, one thing I was thinking of before we, we talked is the idea of like continental drift when it comes to geography, right? Like how much of our politics and being successful as a Democrat or Republican would be due to coming up with a great campaign slogan and great mail and doing all the work Versus just the, the continental political drift of this area is trending this way and that way. Like, is it a force that you can massage and move in a direction? Or is it oh, something yeah. you got to, like, yeah, yeah. push against? So, I mean, obviously trends are not linear, first mm-hmm. of all. Trends don't, you know, some states have been going one way. Some states have been going the other way. But, you know, elections make trends. Trends do not make elections. You know, you can't, you can't accurately say here is a line of past elections and then extrapolate that out to future elections. Mm -hmm. What you can do is you can say, here are all the data points and here is how the state is, you know, being used in the, uh, in the past. Um, and I think 2022 really goes to show, especially after 2020 and 2021, where everybody kind of just thought that, these trends are baked in and the Democrats were kind of going to be out of power for some, you know, ungodly amount is that, you know, there are in fact a sizable amount of persuadable voters and that it's incumbent on campaigns to do the necessary legwork to, you know, make that happen. I mean, why is Florida now, you know, a ginormously red bastion of conservatism? I mean, it's, I mean, yes, the Florida Democrats have their own problems, but the Florida GOP, you know, they started building party machines in the very late 1980s mm-hmm. and early 1990s. And, you know, they basically just kept outworking Democrats cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. And, you know, that's just the kind of legwork you have to do to get to, you know, really a, a state of dominance. I mean, I'm on the Cape right here. And, you know, the state Senate caucus, you know, you can you can fit them inside of, you know, a four-seater with the Uber driver in it. That's how small they are. For they, the Republicans. The Republicans state yeah. Senate. Um, and, you know, they still could lose seats from that. So, and that's the least they've had since the founding of the Republican Party. And, you know, the Massachusetts Democrats have basically been strengthening their hand for the past 60 to 70 years in the state. Um, and so it really just takes, you know, long, you know, determined investment and legwork to actually, you know, build any kind of strong, um, you know, machine in a place. Uh, and I mean, Pennsylvania is a good example of this, right? You know, if you talked in 2016, uh, you know, you would have thought that Pennsylvania was going to become this perpetual, you know, light red state or whatever, Trump won, Toomey won and such. If you look at 22, Fetterman outperformed Barack Obama in 2012, which is crazy when you say it that way. You know, Doug Mastriano it ran and basically gifted the Democrats the state house on a silver platter. Mm-hmm, um, and, um, you know, but 
do people actually think Pennsylvania is going to annihilate the Republican Party anytime soon? No, because, you know, parties change and they adjust what it is they need to win. Um, and so, you know, Are eventually, they? I mean, they try to, right? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm being honest. Like, I, um, at post- least on the national level. I think they do, but, but go ahead, go ahead, Tony. Because I mean, I've seen you—you you like my post, or you commented about this too. And um, I shared a TikTok today, which got dozens of uh, shares or listens, right? So it's very popular. But um, like, there's a polling about Republican primary voters of what they want from a 2024 nominee, and it's like 90% of them want a candidate that challenges wokeism or whatever, and like policies that are just so stoked in the Fox News, Newsmax thing and it seems like if you're a republican so, you have to keep veering towards this conspiratorial right um i've talked with state reps like ashley ani from missouri who told me like because of gerrymandering this republican who was in a plus five r plus five districts now in r20 district so he's got to just care about the primary and so like yeah missouri they're gonna win anyway right like it's not like an issue but the it seems like there's no incentive to try to court too many people outside of your side because they're not going to move. They're not movable. And if you do court your own party, you're going to isolate everybody else outside of it anyway. Yeah. So I think that basically just comes from people being too media addicted, right? You know, if, uh, like at least on the presidential level, since the 1990s, right, all of the elections, you know, have been somewhat, close right 2000 2004 even even 2008 it was you know a veritable landslide but you know it was not a landslide in the way that ronald reagan or fdr nixon would have gotten a landslide you know if 2008 was done in 1948 or 1968 or even 1988 obama would have gotten over 400 electoral votes um but you know i think that when you actually talk to people um, you find that when you can basically turn off all of the signals, you know, of partisan rancor, that many people are a lot more agreeable and, you know, you know, you can have a conversation with them, um, much more than you would think just by looking at them on TV. And, you know, I don't go to DC very often, but when I do, I hang out with, you know, a lot of people across the aisle and, you know, we obviously don't disagree. Uh, we, we obviously don't agree on, you know, policy and such. But you can tell that, you know, they're there because, you know, they're trying to do the very best for their constituents and stuff. And it's not about owning the libs or whatever. For the vast majority of people who choose to work in politics, it's not. Um, so I, I, I really think that a lot of the, you know, animosity on both sides that you see comes from people at the top who are kind of trying to basically pit one team against another to basically keep people in line. You know, if, if, uh, if you just dropped a bomb on cable news, you know, I think eventually people, I mean, people would still have disagreements, but the temperature would be toned down quite a bit, I think, because you yeah. wouldn't have as much to, you know, basically rile people up. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the temperature would be dropped quite a bit if, I mean, and hopefully with Tucker gone, because I know that's reduced the views for uh, Fox News quite a bit. Hopefully that will help. (laughs) Um, But we will will see. Yeah. We'll see. But I also know when I was at the polls on the last election, there was a very nice Republican woman and she was, she was super nice. And she just came to us and she said, I get all my news from Facebook groups. And like, yeah, I could tell the things she was thinking of were just like, this is, Six ways from Sunday. There's a school board election that's a county over that is one of the most controversial in the in the country in Central Box, Pennsylvania, about book banning, LGBT issues, and I don't think it's because of Fox. I think it's because of like a lot of uh, astroturf campaigns and uh, you know, social media. Well, stuff. Yeah, I mean, the astroturf campaigns, right? Nobody cared about this stuff until Fox and and you know higher level GOP operatives told them that this is something they should care about. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I agree that if you talk to people on a regular level, um, people want to help each other. Like if I go, I remember my first campaign, I was in Iowa. You may have been born. I don't know. Um, and uh, like I knocked on a door. I was working for a Democratic candidate for Congress and someone, they didn't even know I was with that candidate. Like he just yelled at me about how much I hated 
John Norris, the candidate, and the, and then I walked and he said, wait, wait, wait. And I thought he was going to like shoot me and he just wanted to give me water. Like, you know, so, you know, there was a regular person aside from hating the Democrats. But, um, but I also, I know that a lot of that exists, right? And I don't know what's worse, like being someone like Paul Gosar from Arizona who is sincerely... His family, his whole family hates him. Right, he is sincerely a terrible person. I think it's objective to say that. For him to do all this stuff, or someone who is quote-unquote moderate, who goes along with it and doesn't push back, and he has the power, there are a couple... Yeah. I don't know I what's mean, worse I than think that. I think that in terms of basically keeping the train on the rails... It's a collective action problem, right? Because if there's only one or two people who speak up, then, you know, they're going to get called rhinos. They're going to get drummed out of the party. I mean, look at what happened to all of the dozen or so Republicans who voted for impeachment. I think there's one who's still left in Congress, maybe two. Um, and I think that you'd be, I mean, the, the, the thing is that you know, somebody in a position of power to command a lot of the GOP, like Mitch McConnell or whatever, if he really wanted to, you know, he could have ended Trump, you know, right away if he really, really wanted to. Or at least after 2021. Yeah, well, yeah, after, after the insurrection, but even in 2017 something, he could have curtailed a lot of his impulses about this or that or whatever. Um... But he didn't, you know, because he evidently had his reasons and his prioritization of conservative policy wins and such. Um, but, you know, that's the choice they made. And, you know, they're just going to have to bear the consequences of, of dealing with that. And, you know, if there is ever such a figure like Trump to emerge on the Democratic side, then... You know, that's going to be something that Democratic elected officials are going to have to answer for as well. Um, I mean, you know, you see a lot of Republicans are saying, you know, I don't like Trump. You know, I just want to make it, all of this stuff go away. But, you know, the chance to make all of this stuff go away was, you know, in 2016. Right. You know, most people still stood by Trump in 2016 as he did all of those things that a lot of people thought would be on the pale. And, you know, that kind of led to the desensitization uh, that we see in politics today to all of these crazy things. I mean, you know, even today, right, George Santos is, you know, kind of a 19th century fairy tale of lies and deceit. But he's not actually, um, there's not really a ton of opprobrium attached to surrounding yourself with people like him, you know, he still goes to clubs and bars in DC and, you know, he acts like it's just another Tuesday. Um, and you know, the, the, the Democrats have their own people in their ranks and such, but you, you definitely see less encouragement of it, at least at this point in time. Oh, I, um, look, I, I be honest. I mean, I, I've been involved for a long time and I know, um, that there's not Democrats aren't all perfect. I have met some bad, you know, being a bad public official or political person is not unique to any ideology. Because you know, if you're if you are, oh right, I mean, you you live right next to Philadelphia. There are plenty of corrupt Democrats in Philadelphia, right? Well, I mean, cor- for, for a variety of things, I think there are very good people in Philadelphia. There's very good people in Chester. And oh, Bar- I mean, <laughs> yeah, yes, obviously, yes. So, so, like, people are people, but I also know that. I haven't met anyone in politics at a serious level on my side of the aisle who would entertain the kind of tomfoolery, the shenanigans, all the hoot nanny or whatever you want to call it from a candidate that, that like we had with Trump and all of the anti-democracy stuff. There's no one when when people on the left talk about like culture issues, it's not because they're trying to like make people hate people. They're like no, we should be more accommodating to people who are different, who need some help. Like, that's, it's not a one-to-one situation. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think so. I mean, I think that, I mean, without getting too bogged down, the, the there's less of uh, a personal animosity 
that uh, the left exhibits in these culture war debates than, than is true on, on the reverse. So from what you've seen from the mapping, from, from all of your work, from analysis of elections, um, well, one, because I know you look at the polling, you look at the, the mail data, you look at things coming in. Um, it's only been a few years since 2016, but what kinds of things do you think if people are looking at elections today that they should maybe be looking at in terms of understanding their state or their district? Well, I mean, everybody always mentions, you know, the Cook, PVI, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, in terms of how red or blue places. You know, at Split Ticket, we have something which I think improves upon that called the CVI, which is the Congressional Voting Index. And it basically takes into account down-ballot lag and such mm-hmm. to get a more accurate read. So that's the first thing. Um, that's, you know, kind of a benchmark metric. I like then that you a lot. Have a, yeah, th- then you have polls and such, obviously. But then, you know, actual, like, primary, like, red voter registration numbers are very, very, you know, indicative in terms of, you know, how enthusiasm for each party in a state is going. Um, I mean, not as much here in Massachusetts because we have a lot of independent voters that, you know, really, they're just Democrats or Republicans. They just want to be independent to say that they're independent. But, you know, take Florida, for example, right? Um, You can tell right now that the Democrats are just not going to win Florida in 2024 because the Republican registration advantage just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. And those are people who have newly registered and they're going to be very high enthusiasm about voting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Democrats just don't have an answer to that. Um, there will still be a poll that comes out in August or September of 2024 that shows Biden up by two or something like that. And everyone's going to freak out and be like, Florida's on the map, right? Yeah, uh, well, I see. I don't claim there's a lot of state level specifics with respect to polling and stuff. So I don't claim to understand that specific state, but. Polls in Florida have been known to be inaccurate for some, you know, amount of, you know, presidential cycles and whatnot. Um, I mean, the other key thing is, you know, I leave all of the Nevada polling interpretations to John Ralston because he's just the go-to guy mm-hmm. for everything that's Nevada. Um, you know, every every state has their expert. You know, Pennsylvania. You know, Ben Foy State on the other side of the Commonwealth. Um, he's, I think, based out of Pittsburgh, but him and Joshua Smithley are my two go-to people there. Um, but, you know, basically, if you want to find a particular state, just, you know, it's Twitter, right? You have so many experts with their, you know, small to medium to large-sized audiences that you should just follow them and listen to what they have to say, you know, like some of those people that I just mentioned. So in addition to kind of things to follow if people are interested in learning more about elect are there any things you're reading like books or things like that that kind of uh inspired you when it comes to understanding politics and elections yeah so i mean i have one of nate silver's books on my shelf that i need to read a friend got it for me for christmas um so, I mean, I think that if you're interested in polling and the quantitative science behind it, mm-hmm. I mean, I think just reading up on statistics and how all of that stuff works is, you know, very, very useful. You know, I got it, you know, I majored in stats in college, so that definitely helps out to some degree. Um, and then I think just, you know, reading, as, you know, because you can get a lot from numbers, but, you know, looking at elections, the numbers tell you a lot about fundamentals and stuff, but you have to remember that voters are people and the people who make decisions based in a lot of things around them that are more than just, you know, obviously whether they went to college, you know, how white a place is, how rich a place is, all of that stuff is important. But understanding, you know, understanding the why is almost as important as understanding the what, because the why influences the what. And the why is, you know, how did this area get its political culture? You know, what are some of the key players? You know, what are some of the issues that all these people cared about, thought about? And so those things, I think, are very, very, uh, very interesting. Uh, you know, one of the first, you know, big political books I read was a biography of the former House Speaker McCormack from uh, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of a 
good primer for, you know, mid 20th century, you know, national politics, because he was the speaker, but also, you know, kind of the rise of the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. And, you know, it was very interesting to see how, you know, all of that gave rise to what we have today in, in, in many, many ways. And so I think that, you know, as long as you just have something that you're interested in, um, you know, there's plenty out there to learn from. And, you know, you should always just reach out to, to people. You know, I got on election Twitter even before I made my very first map because I just asked J. Miles Coleman a question, you know, on a, uh, you know, back in those days, they had just, you know, these Zooms for, mm -hmm. you know, Zoom meetings for anybody on election Twitter who wanted to join. They could come join and talk about politics and such. And, you know, that was where I met some of, you know, my friends, you know, Harrison Lavelle from Split Ticket. You know, he was one of my very first friends. I met him on one of those Zooms. And so I think just, you know, constantly, you know, inquiring and, you know, knowing what you don't know and then trying to figure out what you can know that you don't know is, is always just how, you, how you're supposed to do it. All right. Last question, um, because yeah. it's called the You Should Run podcast. And while you haven't run for office yet, you got time. Um yeah, you, you, one thing we talked about is it seems like certain areas of the country, whether it's a state or a city or just district are unwinnable for one party or another. You're like talking about Massachusetts, like why bother running as a Republican? Or you talk about Florida, why, why bother running as a Democrat? Why, if you're listening to this and you hear someone like you talk and giving astute analysis of elections, why would you tell people that, no, you should still run for office, whatever office it is? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, people deserve to have a choice. And I think there's something good about fighting for the principles that you believe in. And, you know, whether it's Democrat, Republican, liberal or conservative, you know, you have a right and frankly a duty to make your voice heard. I mean, that's what that's what this democracy is all about. Um, and, you know. You know, people run for office, you know, some people run because, you know, and they choose what party they are because of, you know, the ease of electability. In Massachusetts, there's a lot of people who just run as Democrats because it's the only way they can get elected. Um, and the same is true in, you know, Wyoming or something for Republicans. Um, but it, it's a disservice to have, you know, just, you know, low civic engagement, political engagement, because, you know, that just leads to a fossilized political culture that doesn't really respond to the needs of, you know, the people that they're actually meant to serve. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, on my end, making maps and stuff is cool, but ultimately it's about the people that these politicians serve, which is the important thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, running for office, you know, especially if you're in a hostile area, it's not easy. It takes time. It's taxing on you. And, you know, it, it, it has, you know, various costs associated with it. But if it's something that you can do and you feel even the slightest bit of inclination to make a community a better place, then, you know, I would, uh, you know, I would do that, you know. And that's regardless of party, you know. If, uh, you know, if I lived in Wyoming or something, then I'd just register as a Republican and I'd just run because, I mean, you know, it'd be cool to, you know, win an election as a Democrat in Wyoming, but, you know, my job is, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't personally see myself running for office because I think there are better people to do it than me. Have you met people? Um, huh? Have you met people? Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I think there are people who are more suited to running for office than me, and I think they're better at it. But, you know, if I ever did it would not be out of any desire to make a, you know, a long career out of it. You know, it would, it would be to, you know, for the primary purpose of, you know, sticking out for the people in, uh, in my community and, you know, whatever. There's nothing wrong with making a career out of making a difference for your community. Like that's, that's fine. Oh, like, no, no. Bob Casey's there, been there in office nothing. since 19 dickety two. And like, he's getting better with age, I think. No, so there, there is nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with that. I just don't think I'm cut out for that. Well, That's all. Is all I'm saying. Um, but I, I really think that you know, if you have the time, you know, even just putting your name on the ballot in an unopposed district, you know, to give voters a choice is is good. You know, because people, 
people need to make their voices heard. And especially, you know, in Massachusetts, we have so many uncontested general elections and even more uncontested primary elections, Mm -hmm. too. Um, You know, it uh, it it serves the vote as well to have a choice between between two candidates, I think. So, yes, you should run. Yeah, I agree. I think that that is a problem, whether whether whatever you think of the party primaries uh, or part of the primary bases. When a state becomes so entrenched with one party or another, it's not ideal to have no primaries because like oh, yeah. said, everyone should have but a choice. I mean, the primaries take the place of the generals at that point. Yeah. So if with all that, if people want to learn more, you said people are in, on election Twitter are very um, open to talking and learning. Um, how can people follow you and, and learn more and, and follow your work? So, I, so if you go to split-ticket.org... That's our website, so you should go check out all of our stuff. We've got a ton of models, maps, metrics, you know, articles, all sorts of things for you to peruse over and, you know, enrich your knowledge of elections and, and politics and data. And then me personally, if you want to follow me, I am at Thorongil16 on Twitter. You know, I make lots of maps, you know, occasional commentary about elections and, you know, models and such. And I help, you know, grow the split ticket site. But, yeah, that's, that's me. That's, that's what I'm about. Well, I think everyone should follow you. I've learned a lot by following pe- you and people like you from Split Ticket and other places to kind of pay attention to these elections. And i got to be honest, if you're listening and you're from Pennsylvania like myself or New Jersey or wherever, every state matters. What's happening in Montana has an impact across the country. What's happening mm-hmm. in Colorado is good, bad, or indifferent. For Nothing's indifferent. Everything matters. Uh, thanks so much, Armin. I really appreciate it. And best of luck. And Maybe you should come to Pennsylvania and really learn about all all we're doing here. Oh yeah, no. Next time I'm in Philly, I definitely will will try I'll to, you to ice make cream. it out there. Yeah. All right. Good. All right. Thank you. And if you're listening, maybe you should run for office too. Just too. Thank you.